Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We're here today with Brandon Monroe, who's the CEO of Bannerman Resources, a uranium player with assets in Australia. How are you? Great. How are you? It's been a while. Yeah, it has been actually. Yeah. So um, obviously, I think the last sort of major event here in London was the WNA, the uh, World Nuclear mm-hmm. uh, Association event, of which you sit on a couple of committees, I think. Yeah, or- that's right. So I, I sit on, there's a working group that's producing the next nuclear fuel report. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time we got together, we talked about that when it was released in September yep. in 2019. So now yep. we've started kicking off for the 2021 report. Right. So I... I'm involved in three of the working groups, and I chair the working group that determines the demand projections right. for nuclear fuel out to 2030. Fantastic. Now, you've had a few meetings in London this week, mm-hmm. working group sessions this week. Um, you've kindly agreed to come and tell us a little bit about what you're discovering. So last year, difficult year, mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. difficult year mm-hmm. for uranium. It didn't move the way people had hoped. Mm-hmm. Price, there was no price discovery. Equities haven't moved much. I think if anything, mostly gone down, some yeah. a lot more than others. And there are a few sort of major catalyst moments which didn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, not, not least of all the um, section 232 Correct. and even the conference in London in September didn't really have much of an effect. I'm not quite sure anyone knows what's going on, do you? I can hopefully share a couple of <laughs> insights with you. Right. Um, what we've got, I think, yeah. is an extraordinary situation where the visual part of the market, which of course is the spot price yeah. and the non-existence of any real term volume. As you say, there's no real price discovery, but to the extent it exists in the spot market, we've got something that just looks dull, boring, disappointing. And that's had a corresponding effect on most equities. As you say, it's been carnage out there for the last year Mm. um, for many, many companies. Uh, But what we can see taking place under that visual surface veneer, I think is very positive for the sector. Right. Well, let's let's look at a few of those moving parts behind the curtain as Mm -hmm. as it were, Mm -hmm. because they you know, people talk about the macro story, and there's billions and billions of dollars mm-hmm. of uh, nuclear uh, reactor infrastructure being built across the world yep. in, in multiple uh, jurisdictions mm-hmm. and countries. And people focus on Germany, ran things back, French did, now they're not. But there's more to it than that in, in terms of that infrastructure mm-hmm. um, build out. Um, but I don't want to talk about that because I think that's that's well covered. Can mm-hmm. we talk about some of the um, the in, in inventory side of things? Because you know, I think you kind of talked in the past about you know mm-hmm. different paths of you know U three O eight and U six and uh, the EUP. I mean, what, what's happening there? So, what we're seeing is inventory tightening, right? Um, Meaning, what was tightening mean? Uh, the the sector always exists with a lot of inventory, right? That's been the case for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not helpful to look at the absolute total amount of inventory that's calculated throughout the sector. Mm-hmm. You need to understand where that inventory is held. Right. So inventory that's held by the Russian government or the US government or Chinese stockpiles, that's kind of interesting, but it doesn't dictate anything in the market because that material is just locked up mm-hmm. for strategic purposes. The relevant part for investors and the price is mobile inventory. 
what inventory is available to either suppress demand or be sold into the, uh, into the bid when price goes up. Right, okay. Because that's what's interesting to an investor. Is it gonna suppress a price rise? Absolutely. And what we've seen there is a tightening. In U308, we've seen tightening largely because of the deficit that we've got at the moment. So even after allowing for secondary supplies, mm -hmm. we've run a 20 million pound deficit for the last couple of years. So that is being drawn down mm -hmm. predominantly by utilities underbuying. Mm -hmm. But what I find fascinating is, uh, as you mentioned, you've got three forms of uranium. Yeah. in the nuclear fuel cycle. And you know, for the listeners, you've got U308, which is the mined concentrate. Mm -hmm. That's then subjected to conversion. Mm -hmm. And conversion is a service that is applied to the U308 that the, the utility pays for, and that turns U308 from a powder or yellow cake into a gas, uranium hexafluoride. And that's still a homogenous commodity because mm -hmm. it's just UF6. From there, you get enrichment, again, typically a service paid for by the utility where they, the uranium that they've bought off a mine then goes through enrichment to the specifications required for their particular type of reactor technology. Mm -hmm. In the old days, that's how it worked. The utilities would buy the uranium, they'd pay for the conversion service, they'd pay for the enrichment service. Mm -hmm. But what's happened since Fukushima, when we had reactors come down, particularly in Germany and in Japan, is inventory started to build up, not only in U308, but also in UF6 mm -hmm. and in AUP, the enriched uranium product. And that's been a problem for our market because you've got a substitutability between those three forms mm -hmm. of nuclear power. And not only can the utilities arbitrage between those three forms, if they don't like the price that uh, they're getting in U308, then mm -hmm. they can go to UF6 or EUP, but they can also ignore the time criticality of planning because in the old days, they would have to have bought their U308 two years before they needed it yeah. because it takes a lot of time to transport and move through that cycle. Now, if they sort of uh, mess up on the planning, well, that's okay because there was UF6 available that they could buy one year out from when they needed it or EUP that they could buy six months out from when they needed it. And that has contributed to the utilities being able to hold off on restarting the contracting cycle. Right, interesting. Now, back to what's relevant today and why I say that the sector and the market is tightening in a very favorable way. Okay. First of all, um, UF6 has tightened almost entirely. So I've just been to a room with the people who uh, play in this sector. And what happened, as you know, is a couple of years ago, Convidine put the Metropolis conversion facility into care and maintenance. And cleverly, they bought all of the UF6 that they could find, all of the mobile mm -hmm. inventory in the form of UF6, they bought up. And they did that because they had conversion contracts. And when they closed the doors on Metropolis, they would have to continue delivering into those. Interesting, okay. Um, so UF6 is very tight, even so much so that we saw a few months ago, Uranium Participation Corp, swap out their UF6 for U308 and take advantage of that arbitrage. We've also seen a tightening in enrichment and that has been exacerbated by geopolitical concerns around Iran's sanction waivers. And maybe we can come back to that. Mm -hmm. 
So we're seeing EUP tightening. U308, we are also seeing tightening, but not to the same extent. Hence why we've got $25 uranium or $24.50 uranium. But if you look at what happens when those markets tighten, UF6 in the time frame that I've described, that's gone up 400% spot UF6, uh, spot conversion. So mm -hmm. conversion is the price of the service. So the difference Amazing. between what you pay for UF6 and what you pay for U308, 400%. And that's been a wake up for the utilities because many of them forgot that those sort of that's increases are possible. So that tells us something. Yep. What about uh, the enrichment component? Has that gone yeah, up? Also, not to the same extent, right. but it's gone up from mid-30s. Yeah. Um, so it's measured as US dollars per, um, the SWU price, the separative work unit, mm -hmm. gone up from mid-30s to about 50. So that's also a healthy increase. Okay, so this is what you mean so by, so, you know, behind the curtains, mm -hmm. there are things going on which are indicative of a movement or mm -hmm. the, the need for a movement mm -hmm. relatively soon. So why weren't these conversations happening at the beginning of 2019? I mean, because there was, the numbers were, they were starting to move in 2019, but they haven't had an effect on spot, yeah. obviously. There aren't that many contracts being written, as we know. Um, so it, it, how do you work out where the threshold is? Where, where's that critical threshold that these numbers are getting? Does it need to get 600% on the conversion? Does it need to get to 70 bucks on the enrichment? Where are the markers for investors to actually know when this market's gonna go? Because like I said right mm -hmm. at the beginning, it feels like not too many people know what's going on in the yeah. uranium space at the moment. So I, I tell you all that it needs, because I've been, mm -hmm. as you know, been in meetings in London for the last couple of weeks, and I get the same question, what's the catalyst? Good. You only need a sentiment switch for this market to tighten. And that sentiment switch can come from anything. So if we're going, if we use the examples now of UF6 and enrichment, um, in UF6, before, when sentiment was low, mm -hmm. Convidine were able to buy all of the UF6 that they needed to buy. And they did that. The moment the price started to go up, the mobile inventory disappeared. Mm -hmm. And that is a fact in this market. There's an inverse relationship between the mobility of inventory and the price. As the price goes up, inventory disappears. And we even saw that, um, talking to some of the traders as I have um, in the last couple of weeks, we even saw that in November, October, November, when we started to see a bit of an increase in the uranium price. It went mm -hmm. up about 8% in yeah. a couple of weeks. Yeah. And the inventory, the availability of U308 vanished. It only started to come back when the price softened again. And, uh, and the various parties who had it to sell figured that there was... Uh, no time value in money at that point. But you talk about sentiment, okay, and, and I agree with that. That's, that's mm -hmm. market-wide, not, not just mining, across mm -hmm. mul multiple um, public companies and uh, sectors. Where are, where are the drivers within in, in that description? So sentiment, sentiment of utility bias? Correct. That, right there, not, nothing to do with retail, nothing Correct. to do with institutional bias. So oh, that's what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, okay. let, let me put some numbers on but, that. But it, sorry, that's, sentiment's a very soft thing. Okay, you know, utility powers are, you know, actually, actually, right? They're, they're, they're reading the market. They're going to do the, what's the right thing economically for them. That's, less, that's not sentiment to me. That's just smart about their buying. They're going to buy cheap for as long as they possibly can. They understand 
you know, you know what is out there, and then also when they need to start buying, they and no one else understands that. So they are they are very much in control. But that seems a very cold, calculated thing rather than sentiment. So what do you mean? So let me let me try and explain that a bit further and put Thank some you. numbers on it. Okay. Okay. So maybe sentiment's a little bit wishy-washy, mm-hmm. but really what we're talking about is their view of the medium-term price and what effect that is going to have on their immediate actions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so some numbers. Um, we're running a 20 million pound deficit in the U308 sector at the moment, right. after taking into account secondary supplies. Okay. So put some numbers on that. Uh, 2016, the sector was uh, knocking out about 160 million pounds of U308 production, mm-hmm. mined production. That's now come down 25 million pounds because of um, care and maintenance in MacArthur River, the Kazakhs reducing and various other supply destruction that's taking place in the mm-hmm. sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondary supplies, all of the various forms running at about 25 million pounds against a reactor burn up mm-hmm. of 180 million pounds. Okay. Rough numbers. Yeah. So, so far, there isn't enough demand at the U308 level to put pressure on the price. So what we know is that there's about, instead of 180 million pounds of demand, because that's the amount of, that's being burnt up each year, it's about 160 million pounds of demand. Okay. Okay. Caused by two things. Preferential buying of UF6 mm-hmm. and EUP mm-hmm. over U308 and utilities wearing down their inventories. So 20 million pounds, if I then translate that into numbers in the US, for example, in rough terms, the US nuclear fleet consumes about 50 million pounds of uranium, and they've been underbuying the last few years by about 20%, mm-hmm. so 10 million pounds per annum. Mm-hmm. All they need to do is make a decision that they're gonna change their policy from underbuying to full coverage and that's 10 million pounds. That's a dramatic effect yeah. on that 20 million pound def, uh, deficit. Or we could see financial players enter the market again. So in 2018, about 10 million pounds was taken out of the market by Yellowcake and UPC topping up. Right. Again, that's a 10 million pound swing. So any of a, a swing like that, particularly if it goes up to 180 and starts to really expose that supply demand deficit in U308, that's enough to generate a very sharp price response, which will then have secondary effects in terms of secondary buying. It's interesting. I mean, do you think there will be financial impact from, up, well, not necessarily Yellowcake, but players like Yellowcake in the market going forward? Because again, they don't seem to be able to raise the capital cheaply. Yellowcake have their own issues at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see any generalist funds wanting to back a, a, another team buying up uranium. At the moment, I mean, are you aware mm-hmm. of any? Yes. Okay. But it's private, so right. we're aware of um, family offices clubbing together. Okay. Um, we're aware of banks and hedge funds, but it's not the same model as a yellow cake. A yellow cake is a buy, create a market instrument with liquidity and hold into the long term. Yeah. So the other buying in the financial market that we're starting to see is not a sequestration. Right. of that uranium okay. in the way that uh, UPC and Yellowcake. I mean, it's such a small market. I mean, it's a $10, yeah. $10 billion market. Yeah. It's, it's nothing. So you know, big institutions 
I'd be, you know, it's it would surprise me if they create teams to take advantage of the Correct. Iranian space. Yep. So and and look, let's face it, investor sentiment is desolate at the moment in Iran. Yeah. So uh, it, for generalists to get involved in the commodity, yeah. we're going to need a movement in price. I don't think right. that we're going to see a change in investor sentiment until we see price change. There's there's not enough potentiality visible to the market for investor sentiment to, to okay. change until price does. So let's let's move on. Because other, other things I want to talk. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> there's other things I want to talk about because obviously in conversion and enrichment prices going up. I think that's a big clue. However, trying to understand what the timing of that is more complicated. So and I'm going to try and get a get some sort of forecast from you at the end of this conversation. But talk to me about the, um, the JCPOA, please. Okay, so Joint Cooperative Plan of Action. Right. Um, put it, in place. Who are, all the, who are all the parties involved with that? So it's Iran on the one hand. Yep. And then you've got the UK, France, Russia, China, and the US. Yep. So they are the cooperative parties. Yep. Um, put in place in 2015, because as you know, Iran was showing signs of building a military nuclear yep. program. And the plan was designed to hold off sanctions on Iran in return for Iran complying with certain obligations. Right. Um, predominantly, they were obligations of uh, maintenance and monitoring, yep. um, unfettered monitoring of their facilities, and obligations designed to go further than existing non-proliferation obligations that mm. are imposed on everyone else, mm -hmm. uh, to put a big spacer between Iran defaulting on its obligations and having the capacity to produce uh, military-grade uh, uranium. Right. So before Christmas, November of time or so, that started getting a little bit more complicated. The US pulled out, plus the actions of a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. again by the US, mm -hmm. further complicated relationships with Iran. So can you talk to us about the your view on the US and mm -hmm. the European, well, generally European alliance with Russia mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. uh, and you know how you see that going forward because things just got very complicated. Okay, so it's it's good to step back a little bit to try mm -hmm. and work your way through the detail and the complication here. So the JCPOA was set up. One of the first things that the Trump administration did mm -hmm. was to withdraw. Um, and they did it in a way where they withdrew unilaterally. There mm -hmm. was a diplomatic scramble by the other cooperative parties to try mm -hmm. and keep the agreement on foot. And what that enabled the Trump administration to do was to re-establish a whole range of sanctions on Iran, uh, but that were being held off because of their commitment to the JCPOA. Mm -hmm. uh, oil sales, access to the US financial markets, et cetera, et cetera. But what they didn't do is they didn't allow those sanctions to extend to the provision of services and fuel to the US nuclear industry. And there was this thing created called the sanctions waiver. Right. And the sanctions waiver needs to be re-evaluated every 90 days. So every 90 days, the Trump administration sits down and says, are we gonna give another 90 day waiver yep. or are we going to withdraw the sanctions waiver? And importantly for the sector and for the utilities and for the listeners, mm -hmm. The next sanctions waiver um, consideration date is 31st of January. Yep. Now, what happened is November the 19th, Mike Pompeo announces that the Trump administration is withdrawing the waivers in respect of the Fordale 
enrichment facility mm -hmm. that was being used initially under the JCPOA to produce medical isotopes, but one of the progressive uh, breaches of the agreement, the JCPOA that Iran announced, mm -hmm. was enrichment of civilian grade uh, uranium mm -hmm. rather than just for medical isotopes. Now, Fordow is a tailor-made facility for the, for the electorate in the US, built into a mountain. It's real James Bond stuff. Clearly, it was set up to produce military-grade enrichment when mm -hmm. you look at the configuration of the cascades and that sort of thing. So it's an ideal target for the Trump administration to show that they're really serious about this. December 15, coming up, the utilities become very concerned because no one was particularly clear who was involved in the Fordow um, facility. And when the waiver gets lifted on December 15, it could have been mayhem. Right. Now, to understand why the utilities are concerned, uh, half of the enrichment services provided to US utilities comes from Russia. Some of it directly from Tvel and Tenex, and some of it is effectively resold by other enrichment providers. Mm -hmm. And the excess capacity in the Western world enrichment isn't enough to fill that gap. Not only that, but Rosatom as the uh, the Russian nuclear giant, it's involved in absolutely every aspect of the civilian nuclear yep. power cycle. As it turned out, Tvel withdrew from its involvement in the Fordow plant because mm -hmm. uh, it was providing assistance with their medical isotopes and according to them, any uh, civilian enrichment creates contamination that makes that program impossible. So that one sort of washed over. De December 15 came and went, and all was okay. So now we for fast forward to what you're talking about with a huge escalation of tensions in Iran a month before the next sanctions waiver. So there's a lot of concern from US utilities, but also European utilities, that if that sanctions waiver or the entire deal falls over, um, the Russian nuclear providers are going to have to make a decision. Do they back Iran and continue to support Iran mm -hmm. and be restricted from providing a whole range of different services it's not, and products? It's not just the Russians here. Let's, let's, you know, you've got the Brits, the French, the Germans. There's a, there's a lot of superpowers, mm -hmm. part of the G7, mm -hmm. who are involved with this, G7 plus Russia. Yeah. They don't agree with the, the, the American stance and position, certainly not what happened mm -hmm. two, week, two weeks ago. You know, and I think there's been a lot of posturing mm -hmm. going mm -hmm. on. And I don't want to make this and get this into a political conversation. I want it to be about uranium. But the reason why Europe hasn't followed the US is because they think that the, the Iran deal is a good deal. Correct. It, it's working. And I think a lot of people in the US think it's working. But it, it's rather unfortunate timing because again the perception again mm -hmm. get into the politics of it but perception is in, in an election year going to war has traditionally been quite a good vote winner so you know it's that whole mess has been so sort of slightly discredited with discredited with the timing um, but what impact is it going to have if any on the I'm going to bring it back to investment. Okay, so mm -hmm. is is what's going on in Iran going to have an impact on the ability for equities, uranium equities, to move forward? 
or is this going to actually be another negative impact, another negative event in the world of uranium equities? Okay, so let me just clarify one thing before I answer that question. Yes. Yesterday, so until very recently, all of the other parties, mm -hmm. ex-US, mm -hmm. uh, were declaring their support for the deal and right. doing their okay. utmost to keep so the deal on. Give me an update, good. Just yesterday, <laughs> yeah. uh, they invoked the dispute clause under the JCPOA. Interesting, okay. Article 36. And what does that mean? It basically means that there's a 14-day dispute resolution. And what Boris Johnson has said is that he would like to see a new deal, which he aptly named the Trump deal. So I think what they've realised wow. is that they need to try and get Iran to come back to the negotiating table and renegotiate the whole JCPOA. Okay. Right. Okay. That's hot off the press. Right. Hot, hot off the press, um, which helps to contain or eliminate the um, sanctions exposure of the other countries. Right. Um, now, how that unfolds, we've got absolutely no idea. Um, and what effect that has on the sanctions waiver that's considered on the 31st, if, if such a thing still exists, mm -hmm. we also have no idea. So that's created a new layer of uncertainty. Now, to go back to your question, it's a difficult um, outcome to pick because it depends. Let's just ignore the dispute that's being called for the moment. Um, it depends on Russia's reaction. I think that they are so dominant in the nuclear sector and it's such a profitable, effective business for them that they would throw Iran under the bus. But you can't put a significant probability on that because it's so wrapped up in Russian foreign policy, which has been extremely successful in the Middle East for them. It, it, it has. Most people don't understand. <laughs> so that would then, if, if they were sanctioned, if Rosatom as a whole was sanctioned, that would lead to a period of chaos in the nuclear supply chain because they're so pervasive in everything, mm -hmm. um, particularly what the traders are doing. You know, many of the, much of the supply of U308 these days is coming from carry trades and so forth that the traders are involved in. But they often have so many chains of custody with those supply chains that most of the time you've got uranium one in there somewhere or you've got one of the other Rosatom subsidiaries in there somewhere. And there's a chance that it could invalidate all of those, as well as the effect on enrichment. Why, why, why is the US taking a risk on this? It's, it's, it's a no-size industry. It's negligible compared to oil. You know, I think obviously Iran's sitting on a lot of oil. Mm -hmm. I guess there's there's some kind of again this conversation for another day. But the million barrels discovered last mm -hmm. year, yep. new barrels discovered last year. You know, and you know, this sector geopolitically is the messiest thing I've ever seen in any investment class, because um, it's it's a very emotive topic. Why? Why are people so wound up about it? Investors get wound up about it. Countries get wound up about it. What's Gets it? you and me pretty excited. I'm excited because I think there's some great opportunities. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's some great companies sitting in here just mm -hmm. waiting for people to just get back to doing business and stop mm -hmm. fighting for yeah. sure. But you know, um, 
again, maybe we should talk about that another as another big topic, the geopolitical component, which I know we did talk about way back. So you asked me what effect it's going to have for equities. Mm -hmm. So there is a period of, if it unfolds that way, mm -hmm. there's a period of confusion and chaos and hard to know what equities would do. Into the medium term, though, it's going to be beneficial for U308 and beneficial for equities. Right. Number one, it's an important reminder to the buyers in this sector, the utilities, that geopolitics does matter and geopolitical risk does play a role. Mm -hmm. So they can't just hoover up all of the material from Kazakhstan that they want at whatever price they want. They must have a diversity of supply, which leads to a stacking in the price that they pay for uranium. Because the supply chain may break further down the line. They need to yep. get certainty. Yep. Okay, interesting. Yep, one. Um, number two, if we see a break in the chain of custody amongst all of these trades, mm -hmm then it's going to push the utilities back to dealing directly with producers. Okay. Um, which in the medium term is a good thing for um, transparency in the use through our price and it's mm -hmm. also going to lead to more price discovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, whilst the traders argue that they play a very important role in ensuring the efficient operation of the market mm -hmm. and so on, um, where we are at the moment is that they're playing a role in um, suppressing price discovery through the various instruments that they've got. Okay. So positive in the medium term, unknown in the short term, but with any unknown, we could see a very sharp price reaction in U308, which would be extremely positive in the short term. I think people would have argued that at the beginning of 2019 too, wouldn't they? So what, what lends you to feel that it's more the case today than it was a year ago? Uh, because the, it, we're talking about the scenario where we have uh, sanctions waivers lifted and chaos in the sector. You, okay. Okay. Well, let, 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 let's wait and see what happens. Mm -hmm. I do want to get on to the next topic. Okay. okay? Cool. Um, but thanks, thanks for that. Okay. We get a lot of commentary from retail investors, family offices, fund managers, you know, CEOs of Uranium Juniors, and they're, they're talking about the returns to the peaks of $130, $140 Uranium, sitting at 25 today. Um, I'd love your view on that one, but, um, but the, other, the other thing they, they talk about is the speed at which that returns, the, the speed at which price, sorry, share price returns, mm -hmm. and it's a hockey stick, of course. So those are great stories. I don't believe them. But they're great stories. What's your position? Do you think we're going to see the a repeat of the last cycle? Honestly, I, yeah, I don't think it's realistic to expect a repeat of that degree of volatility. Why? Well, when you look back at that volatility, and um, I was in the sector at the time, but I was working as a, as an M and A lawyer, mm -hmm. so we're on the M and A side, takeover defences and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I can remember there was a lot of commentary about uranium going to two hundred dollars. And it was a great unknown. The, the extent of reactor builds was an unknown, it, and obviously an upside unknown. There, yeah. was, there was a nuclear renaissance. There was a huge amount going on. It was a demand story in those days. And when there's enough people saying that uranium could go to $200, as it sails through $100, uh, it still feels like a viable buy to keep buying it up. And we had some other dynamics in terms of the Chinese being very early 
in their procurement mm. cycle. They, they had big plans, which are now back on track, but back then they were significant. And those dynamics don't exist at the moment. Instead of being a demand story, what we've got today is a supply story, a lack of supply story and a lack of incentivization. Right. Um, I do believe there'll be volatility and I think the opportunity for this market to slowly balance out mm-hmm. at the right price, I think that opportunity has been slowly dissipating over the last 12 to 24 months. Okay. Um, we would need price signals today and really over the last 12 months to incentivize enough new production to create a balanced market. So an overshoot is certainly likely, but I don't see it being likely that we're going to see an overshoot of 120, $130, $136 like we saw right. last time. It shouldn't be part of an investor's plans. Okay, because you've got lots of lots of companies talking about 50, the need for a $50, $55 spot mm-hmm. just to be able to get, you know, break even. Yep. Fine. And then you've got to be incentivized to actually make some money because that's the name of the game. Yeah. Um, whatever that number is, 65, 70 bucks, um, which, which would be great, but it's that's a long way away. It, it feels like today a long, long way away. It feels but like it. But it, it may go quick. So you're saying it, it could go very quickly up to those sorts of numbers, but then the controls in place or moderation in the market or... Um, a little bit more savvy um, investment strategy now compared to then will temper the growth after that point? Or are you saying that's a slow, steady growth there? Because again, we've seen some numbers from various analysts which suggest this is this may hit 40 bucks by the end of next year, which obviously doesn't do anything for anyone. So what's your thoughts? Yeah, that's right. It, uh, $40 doesn't do anything for the sector. It doesn't... May as well be 25. Correct. But, but that's exactly the point. In terms of fixing the supply disruption that we've got today, but coming down the barrel, particularly when Kazakh production starts to taper off, mm-hmm. it could be 25, it could be 15, it could be 40. It doesn't incentivize anybody. Didn't, didn't, I, the Kazakhs just announced that they overproduced by 4%. The um, Deputy Minister, are you referring yeah. to that announcement? Yeah. So uh, when it tapers off, is, is that a moot point at the moment? Because they, they don't seem to be following their own guidelines, are they? I don't know. Okay. There's there's a number of statements. I, I did ask Kazadam from that question right. over the last couple of days and yep. they didn't know either. So Okay. Right. So <laughs> Okay. Where does that leave the rest of us? Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so um what we've uh, we've got this situation where we need a significant escalation in the uranium price to even start to put new projects into the game. Mm-hmm. And as you say, is it going to be enough for them to get financed and constructed and built? Mm. So the, the, the range that you're talking about, I've got no problem with uranium prices getting there and staying there. And I think there is capacity for an overshoot. Mm-hmm. I just don't see $136. What do you see? I can see an overshoot to 90 Okay. Sustained? Uh, by definition, it's an overshoot, so um, not sustained. Okay. Okay. Because again, at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about some some of the controls in, in place and some of the people who can, you know, control the market to, to a degree. Um, and I've asked this question continually over over time, and people say it's it's impossible for any big players to actually control the market, and that may or may not be the case. I, I personally, I think it, it, it's in it's in the interest of people like Kazatomprom, like Cameco, not to let the market go too crazy because no one wants 500 entrants in the marketplace like last time round. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
but at the, and at the same time, you know, we, we've had conversations with CEOs talking about roll-ups and consolidations and so forth. And I listened to Rick Rooley saying there's perhaps you know, six to ten players who will uh, mm-hmm. run in the market, um, 50 today. So obviously people are expecting a lot of change mm-hmm. in these, this, the structure of you know, uh, uranium producers. Um, what's, what's your take on what the horizon looks like? Obviously we'll, we'll talk about Bannerman at the end and we will speak to you, you've, you've promised to speak to us in the next couple of weeks about Bannerman. I know you've got a lot going on there, but how do you see the junior mining space playing out? Because there's like five biggish boys and then there's a bunch of others. Well, if we talk about capacity of the market, volatility and capacity to overshoot, mm. I think for an investor, they have to be saying, is there investment in the category of producible pounds for the next cycle? Or is it something that could come on in the cycle afterwards? Okay. Because if we do see an overshoot, it's only the companies that are in a position to benefit from that overshoot that are, that are going to produce a superior result. Sure, there might be a little bit of bubble amongst um, mm-hmm. all uranium companies with an equities yeah. response. But at the end of the day, particularly for institutions and investors who need liquidity, uh, if it's not producible pounds, then in a sense, whatever the price is doing in the next cycle is irrelevant. Yeah. Perhaps it'll help their cost of capital, which might mean that they're diluted a little bit less, but you've got to be able to produce pounds into the next cycle. And as you know well, there's very few companies in that small universe of uranium invest investments that can actually do that. Mm. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. You know, to me, that's, there's some, again, big red flags across the market. People need to understand, they need to understand what, what good looks like and what, you know, what not so good looks like. And you know, for me, we've, you know, we talked previously about teams who have produced and sold into market because you know, we think that's really, really important because it's a little bit more complicated than, than mm-hmm. um, other sectors, right? We've talked about um, the, the need for you know, certain, you know, the, the asset to be of a scale you know, mm-hmm. scale's really, really you know, important mm-hmm. here to be able to mine economically because, again, the basic rules of mining still apply. So, mm-hmm. you know, companies with a sense of what the economics look like, that, you know, give you some clues as to whether you invest in them or not. Um, so, but, you mean, you guys, for instance, what, I mean, what's, your, what's your team structure? Have you, have you got people on board who have been there and done it before in, in a cycle? Yeah, absolutely. You have, okay. So, right. And, and for us, that's been extremely important. So if you look at who we've got in the team. Right. So in Namibia, our chairman is Mike Leach. He was the managing director of the Rossing Uranium Mine at a right. time when it was the largest uranium mine in the okay. world. Um, but before that, he was CFO for 15 years. So he was involved in all of the marketing and the contracting and everything about that okay. to do with Rossing um, which was a dominant player. So let's take that. So when you go and have conversations, and sorry to swing this back, swing it back into Bannerman. So I'm putting you on the spot a bit here, but I, I want people to understand the, the, the mindset of the junior mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. minor board. Okay, mm-hmm. so you've got an experienced team. When you're talking to whether it be funds or I know you, you have a lot of talks with people in China because the scale of your project would mm-hmm. suggest that that's probably where you're leaning, but I'm sure you can tell us another time. Um, what are they looking for? Is that an important factor to them? I say it is, but uh, yeah. do they? Absolutely, because as you say, you say uranium mining is a little bit different. And yeah. I know that there's a lot of understatement in that. Yeah. It's critically different. Right. 
Um, you need two things at a senior level. You need that understanding of uranium, those people who've done it before, but you also need to know the country. Okay. So it, we've got Mike Leach who, in terms of knowing the country, president, former president of the Chamber of Mines in Namibia, former chairman of the Namibian Uranium Association, the list goes on. He's, in my opinion, the most senior mining executive in the country. Right. He's our chairman. And you're in Namibia, so yep. Namibia known for mining, but is, is it, what is it, gold? And what was the kind of main mining output? Uranium and diamonds. Uranium and diamonds. It does okay. have gold, it does have copper, lead, right. et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But it is, it's, it's, mining's extremely important to Namibia. Right. It's a big chunk of its GDP and, and the majority of its foreign earnings. Right. And uh, uranium is half of that equation. So it's important that you get into production, start generating cash, employing people and mm -hmm. all of that kind of good stuff. Yeah. No, okay, okay. I, I get that. But it's not just Mike. Our right. managing director in country, Werner Ewald, he was mining manager at Rossing. Um, very, very, he's born Namibian, very, very well known in country, great reputation. Mm. Dustin Garrow is our strategic marketing advisor. We know Dustin, we know, you know Dustin. Dustin. Yeah, we interviewed him um, a couple of times. Dustin sold Namibian uranium for Paladin. Right, so okay. Obviously he knows uranium because he's been in the industry for more than 40 years, but he knows Namibian uranium. He knows exactly what needs to be done to get it out of the country. We're not going to have a mishap on our first shipment and all of that stuff. Sorry, I've forgotten he was, he was uh, involved with you guys. He's, yeah. he's, um, we like him a lot. He just talks common sense. Um, in fact, I encourage people to I encourage people to watch the, the interview <laughs> with Dustin. Um, and, and as you know, yeah. I lived in Namibia for more than five years myself. Yeah. So I know the setup in Namibia, and I've and you know. I mean, but there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on in Namibia. Like you know, unemployment yeah. uh, is quite high. I mean, you know, you sort of look at what's happening in various other countries in Africa. I mean, is Namibia a really benign environment, or is it? Should people be worried about the jurisdiction? Uh, from a living there point of view, yeah. it's entirely benign. I mean, I lived there with my family, with my small kids, right. for more than five years, never even had my car broken into. Right, okay. Um, I'd liken it to living in large parts of Australia. Right, okay. Um, good infrastructure, very strong development agenda, as you know. Right. Um, because of unemployment and fiscal reasons, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing is, because the country was largely built off diamonds and then uranium, yeah. uh, there's a very strong, not only acceptance of uranium, but respect for uranium. You go into Swakopman, which is the coastal town near our project, mm. half of the infrastructure has been built by Rossing. Right. People okay. remember, appreciate and value that. And that is so different to so many different uranium mining jurisdictions. Yep. Even the little NGOs that we've, uh, the, the interest groups that mm. we've got there that oppose um, nuclear power and oppose uranium mining, it, we let them have their voice. I've been in debates with the, the people there. It's all very respectful, but they don't get any traction amongst the local people because people mm. value and are appreciative of what uranium mining's done for the whole country. Right. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. You're going to come back and tell us the Bannerman story properly. Okay, I'd love um, to do that. In the next couple of weeks, probably online when you're back in Oz. Um, it's good to see you over here. Really, it's always good to see you over here. And, and uh, perhaps you can share some of your WNA conversations with us as well when we talk. Great, yeah, always good to catch up. <laughs> okay. Thanks for making time. Appreciate it. Good man, see you soon.
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.